Get ready for a special episode of Edge of Sports where we speak about Israel and Palestine to Pink Floyd co-founder Roger Waters. Here I am, a visiting British passport holder, one of the most popular artists in Israel. I'm treated like a piece of filth by these 18-year-olds who are managing these checkpoints. If they're treating me like this, imagine with what disdain they treat the people who live here and who've lived here for hundreds of years. It is very easy, unfortunately, to um, divert people who are frightened away from examining the reality of their lives into the easy belief that their pain is caused by other people, somebody beyond the border, somebody of a different color, somebody from a different religion, anybody who's different. I like to think that beneath the icy waters of commerce, the iceberg of compassion is somewhere there. Welcome to Edge of Sports. I'm Dave Zirin. If you follow my writing, you know that I've written extensively about the Israeli war on the Palestinian people and how it's impacted the sporting life of people in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, particularly their national soccer team, and particularly the way that some members of this team have been jailed, tortured, and even killed. And it's stunning to me how little impact this story has in the United States. It's really a remarkable sports story about world-class athletes who are being kidnapped and imprisoned for the crime of being soccer players. And to me, this is a sports story that has so many incredible twists and turns and sides. And of course, it's very complicated. And it's one that, to me, lends itself to extensive coverage. But you don't see it. Now, I'm Jewish. I don't know if that shocks anybody. And I got to say that when I write these articles about the trials and tribulations of the Palestinian people, I invariably get bombarded with tweets and emails that I'm called a self-hating Jew. And... To quote Larry David, he said it best. He said, self-hating perhaps, but it has nothing to do with being Jewish. And it is true that in countries around the world, there is sympathy with the Palestinian soccer team and the Palestinian people, but not in the United States. Statistically, there is global sympathy with people who live in the Gaza Strip, but again, not in the United States. And there's a new film out right now that looks at the information war inside the United States that pushes sympathies towards Israel and against the Palestinians. And this film is called The Occupation of the American Mind, Israel's Public Relations War in the United States. And it's available via streaming or rental at www.occupationmovie.com. And today we have its narrator, and he is English singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist and composer who in 1965 co-founded a band you might have heard of named Pink Floyd and his name is Roger Waters. The film is terrific. Uh, The film is The Occupation of the American Mind. 
This film takes an extended look at the tactic of attacking people who stand for Palestinian rights, something I've probably experienced uh, to one one hundredth to the degree that you have. Can can you speak about your own experience with this, about the impact your political activism on this issue has had on you and your career? You know, the impact it's had on my career is unquantifiable. Uh, we will never know because a lot of what happens happens behind closed doors. Some of the attacks are public because they are part of the general policy of Hasbara or explaining I'm sure you've come across that word before. Hasbara meaning Israeli propaganda. Exactly, which is the um, highly efficient mechanism of propaganda, which is what this film, The Occupation of the American Mind, is all about. It's all about the effectiveness of that policy of propaganda throughout the United States of America specifically. So as far as it pertains to me, Anecdotally, uh, friends of mine with whom I may be close sometimes say to me, oh, I'm, I ran into so-and-so, and so-and-so would normally be a, a Jewish person, and that person would say, what is wrong with your friend Waters? Why is he such a raging anti-Semite? Why does he believe all these lies about... Why is he trying to destroy Israel? Why is he a terrorist? Why does he support terrorism? Why does he blah, 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 blah? And you realize exactly that the effect that this constant stream and body of propaganda can have on people who otherwise are perfectly normal, rational, often very kind, loving people who become subject to it and buy the lies that are being projected and in consequence, some develop opinions about people who they don't know at all, like me, for instance, and whose opinions they have never listened to. But they get this message second or third hand from this very powerful propaganda machine. And in consequence, uh, make value judgments about me and about my principles and about my beliefs and so on and so forth and cast me as, a, as the devil in this scenario which is irritating. However, I think it is beginning to... It's not grinding to a halt. If anything, it's gathering momentum. But as the machine gathers momentum, it also becomes more visible. And more and more people, particularly the young, and often young Jewish people, I have to say, if one looks at the demographics, are beginning to ask the question... Is what uh, the Hasbara movement telling us true or not? And if it isn't, what lies behind it and what is the tech? Which is exactly what this movie is all about. And it's why the movie is so important, because it is such a coherent, measured expose of the limitations of the tactic that is being used by, for, for want of a better word, we should call the Israeli lobby in the United States of America. You see, just so you know who you're talking to, me um, is somebody who as a young Jew was very radicalized by the gap between what I was being told Israel was and then what I was reading and seeing and hearing about right. what actually happened to Palestinians. And that gap became unsustainable in my mind that you can't 
live in both of these realities at the same time. You've, of course, been in public and political life for decades. Did you have a moment where you, uh, where maybe it was a conversation with someone or read a book or something that made you say, you know what, despite the cost I will pay, I'm going to devote myself to this? Uh, Dave, I did. I was in a, a vague but intense state of ignorance up until 2006 when I was sort of resurrecting a touring career, part of which was a, a European tour. And really, without paying very much attention to my schedule, I realized at some point that I had been contracted to do a concert in Tel Aviv, tacked on to the end of a European tour. And um, I started to receive emails from not just Palestine, but from all over the Middle East and all over North Africa as well, from Algeria and Morocco and all, and all over Europe, I have to say, too. People acting in solidarity with what was then a newly formed organization coming out of Ramallah, which was the beginnings of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And coming, as I do, from, from a, a family where... My father was killed in the in the Second World War, but my mother was always extremely active politically, and the foundation stone of her political beliefs and of her activism was as follows, that it's necessary to find out as far as you can the facts on the ground, the, the history of what's going on, and to, as dispassionately as possible, base your actions upon whatever it is that you can glean of what's the reality. So I started doing some research and discovered that the narrative that I had been picking up, presumably from the mainstream media in the UK and also in the United States, was not a true narrative. I then uh, became engaged in a, in a long email conversation with Omar Barghouti, who was one of the prime movers of, at the instigation by Palestinian civil society of BDS. And um, after much toing and froing, I took the position that I could not proceed in all good faith and conscience with the concert I was supposed to do in a football stadium in Tel Aviv. So I told the promoter, Shuki Weiss, his name is, I, I said, I'm cancelling the gig, I'm not going to do it. But by way of a compromise, I had also discovered a multi-faith agricultural community halfway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem called Neve Shalom, or Wahat Asalam is the Arab name, where they grow chickpeas, you know, to make hummus, and their children all go to school together, Christians and Jews and Muslims and Druze, and all live together, um, cheek by jowl, heart by heart, and as a demonstration of... Uh, how one can cross the irrational borders between faiths that that we're all brought up to revere and um, bow down before. So anyway, it was a great place, and I said, well, could, "Would you mind if I came and if I moved my concert to one of your chickpea fields?" And once they figured out I was real, they went, "That would be great." So we did. In 2006, we did, we, we had 60,000 people came. So the show went on very late because, you know, the roads were all blocked and blah, blah. Anyway, it was a huge success. 
Mm. Um, but what I realized was that I was playing to an audience that was entirely segregated. Mm. I doubt that there was one person who was not Jewish in the audience because Palestinians, even Israeli Arabs, find it difficult to travel. There are restrictions. However much the Hasbara will protest that Israel is a democracy, it is a democracy, but only up to a certain point. There are different laws depending upon your ethnicity. If you're an Israeli Arab, you are subject to a different set of laws, particularly as, as uh, relate to property laws, than if you're a, a Jewish Israeli. It is not the um, bastion of uh, equality and justice and freedom that the Hasbara would have us all believe. Anyway, so we did that gig, which was fine, and they were incredibly enthusiastic, and it was beautiful, and it was a beautiful night, and everything was done perfectly, and there were tents and wonderful food, and until the moment when at the end of the gig, I stood up and made a very short speech. I spoke to the audience and said that they were the generation of young Israelis who needed to make peace with their neighbors and deal with all the bull that was um, destroying their land and destroying the, their neighbor's land. And they went very, very quiet, very, very quiet. And you could see them kind of looking at each other and going, what the F is he talking about? You know, this is not, what's he talking? They just didn't get it at all. And so the next year, I went back on a visit as a guest of the United Nations, UNRWA specifically, and more specifically, a wonderful woman who was running the office in Jerusalem called Allegra Pacea, uh, who's a U.S. citizen, a wonderful, wonderful Jewish lady. And... Um, I traveled extensively in the West Bank. I visited Janine. I got involved in an initiative there to rebuild a cinema. I became very involved with lots of people there. I, I met the father of the child who had been killed in the refugee camp. They made a documentary movie about this boy. He was nine years old, shot by the IDF and killed, but on life support for a bit. And somehow a Palestinian male nurse negotiated with the father and with the imam and with the PFLP to use his organs to save the lives of children in greater Israel, which they did. And they made a movie called The Heart of Janine, which is incredibly moving. And uh, so I spent quite some time with this child's father, Ismail, and um, I spoke to the elders and I traveled all around and it brings um i find it difficult to even talk about it and this was in 2007 this is nine years ago and um i am still so disturbed and distressed by what i saw uh in the occupied territories if we're allowed to call them the occupied mm. territories which the hasbro would have us say we're not allowed to call them that um, yeah, but, Governor Chris Christie, Republican here, used that word, and it was like a, a scandal broke out. Yeah. <laughs> Sheldon Adelson had to wrap him sharply on the wrist <laughs> and tell him to hold his tongue and to use his words more carefully. I, I remember that. That was like last year or something. Yeah, that was a r remarkable moment. And Christie, who is supposed to be this big tough guy, I yeah. mean, really just dropped to his knees and apologized. He did, yeah. Fulsomely. Yes, he did. Unbelievable. I know, it's kind of nauseating. Well, it's not. It is nauseating. It's nauseating beyond beyond 
all comprehension. So anyway, traveling around as I did, partly because I was in a small convoy of um, white United Nations jeeps, the border guards were extremely suspicious of us. They don't like anybody observing anything. And they were so unpleasant and nasty routinely whenever we tried to cross a checkpoint. Also, of course, our driver was um, Palestinian, and so he couldn't go through the checkpoints with us. He had to go through all the cage work, and he had to go through all the revolving iron turnstiles. And so we mm. would routinely have to somehow get the jeep to the other side and then wait for him and the cameraman to come through by the long route, which could take an hour or, or however long it took. Or we might just say, listen, we'll see you tomorrow because we couldn't wait that long or whatever it might be. And so I remember thinking to myself, here I am, a visiting British passport holder, one of the most popular artists in Israel, you know, voted the most popular artist. Even after all of this, they love the music, but I'm treated like a piece of filth by these 18-year-olds who are managing these checkpoints. And I remember thinking, if they're treating me like this, imagine with what disdain and callous disregard they treat the people who live here and who've lived here for hundreds of years and who, in 1947, represented 70% of the population of the British Mandate. Mm. And we know, of course, how they treat them. We, because here we are now in 2016, I think in uh, Hebron, again, mm -hmm. they shot dead a 24-year-old mother of a 7-year-old and a 5-year-old because for the first time she was trying to go to Jerusalem, she'd never been through the checkpoint before. She and her brother, who was 16 years old, made the mistake of walking, of trying to cross down a road that was meant for vehicles, not people. They shouted at her to stop in Hebrew, a language that she doesn't understand a word of, and neither does her brother. She did stop. And then they shot her to death because they said they thought she was wearing an explosive belt, presumably because she had a bulge. She had a bulge because she was five months pregnant. Her brother went to help her. They shot him dead too. And Well, they shot him and they, they leave them to bleed out on the ground. That is what they do. I mean, not always. As we saw the sergeant a few weeks ago, you know, they'd left somebody to bleed out with six bullet holes in him and he shot him in the head and finished him off. And this kid is now a hero. Yeah. He's a hero. They, they carry him round on their shoulders. Not only has he not uh, faced any punishment at all for this um, cold-blooded execution of a wounded man. He's like, like, a, like a football hero, almost. He's like a football hero. Yeah, he is being carried shoulder-high through the streets of his you know, hometown. Yeah. Um, so it is a complete disaster what is going on. I got to ask you, I mean, how does it feel to, you come back with these harrowing firsthand accounts of things that you've seen and thought about and worked through in your mind and you lay them out in very methodical order. And if you were doing this coming from, say, South Sudan, you'd be George Clooney and yeah. people would be putting you on a stage at the UN to tell your stories or, or having dinners, state dinners for you. And yet you come back and tell these stories and you get, 
someone like Howard Stern calling you an anti-Semite and saying that you must want all the Jews in concentration camps, just like a thuggish, brutal response. What is your response to that when you come back with like a real story and the response is just, well, you must hate Jewish people? Well, Howard Stern, excuse me for chuckling, but... um He's a shock jock, you know, this is his stock in trade. This is how he makes his lousy living, is by being shocking. And so it, it doesn't surprise me at all that he should employ that rant in pursuit of his living, which is what it is, I think. The fact that he has no interest at all in the narrative, none, only goes to support the view that the occupation of the American mind is real, that it is dangerous, and that mm -hmm. it has a vice-like grip on the small minds of people like Howard Stern, mm -hmm. and that the movie is deeply important, and the fact that it is being suppressed by the very society that it seeks to illuminate and to help is why you and I are speaking this morning. What we've seen is really another kind of occupation an occupation of American media and what we could call the American mind by pro-Israel narrative that's deflected attention away from what virtually everyone recognizes as the best way to resolve this conflict, end the occupation and the settlements so that Palestinians can finally have a state of their own. Everyone of good conscience all over the world, but very particularly in the United States of America, a country that I have to tell you I have not yet given up on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can laugh, but you can laugh. But you know, there, there. My mother always said to me, she visited here before the war, and she said, "You know, the American people—they're very, very kind, darling. Very good, kind people. Good-natured, good this, good the other, good, good." This. She said, "But you know, darling, they are very gullible." <laughs> yeah, I like to think that beneath the icy waters of commerce. The iceberg of compassion is somewhere there, you know, and the titanic of greed and obsession with power will founder eventually on the inherently good natures of human beings. And the fact that if given a fair crack of the whip, we human beings will often choose to help other people and to empathize with the lot of those who are less fortunate than ourselves and that we will come together and strive to make this earth more livable in and happier and more susceptible to love than it was before we arrived and leave it a better place for our children and our grandchildren than I discovered after the Second World War. When, yeah. when, the, when these dreams were alive, when Mistress Liberty meant something to us. <laughs> Since you brought up the United States, I mean, the, the, the connective tissue, other than the obvious, between Palestine, Israel, and the United States is this obsession with walls. And, yeah. of course, your, one of your most famous songs and albums, The Wall, um, The Wall, Israel, Palestine, The Wall that Trump keeps promising he'll get Mexico to build. What is the attraction of autocratic minds to walls and why do they have currency with masses of people all I was just a brick in the wall 
another thing that happens to ordinary people is they get scared. And they get scared particularly when they see their pay packet diminishing as the decades go by, where they see things not getting better but getting worse. And it is very easy, unfortunately, to um, divert people who are frightened away from examining the reality of their lives into the easy belief that their pain is caused by other people, somebody beyond the border, somebody of a different color, somebody from a different religion, anybody who's different in this country, you know, because after the um, Pilgrim Fathers arrived, then the Irish started arriving, and they were the butt of everything for many years. And then, of course, you know, freed all the black people who'd been shipped over here from Africa, and they became, and, and they still are. This is still a deeply racist society in the United States of America. And so you can always gain political capital from identifying an enemy. But the enemy has to be, uh, they have to be different from you. In this, in the case of Trump and Cruz, Muslims are perfect because you can say Islam or you can say Muslims or you can say Arabs and you can identify them because, you know, the women wear headscarves and there's a certain look and so they're very easy to spot. And so they become a very easy target and they divert attention from the people from whoever it is who are actually causing the pain uh, to the people who are working for $7 an hour. Exactly. And, and the people who are actually causing the pain, obviously, are the people who own Walmarts, but who in turn owe obeisance to the neocons. It's a redirection of negative energy. And walls are perfect because you can say, if only we can build a wall and keep the rapists as the idiot Donald Trump described Mexicans. He said they're all rapists. I mean, come, give me a break. If you can build a wall, then you'll be safe. What? It's completely irrelevant, obviously. You can't separate people by building walls. It's just not possible. Human beings will always flow from geographical areas of economic disaster and also of war and strife, men and women will always try and take their children to somewhere where they can have a better future and get a fairer crack of the whip.
Now, when you look at this situation, and, and particularly, I, I so agree with you that point about how economic insecurity underpins that that drive for walls and that fear. Do you ever think that your song "Money" has turned out to be like prophecy? I don't think it's prophecy. It was just a piece of observation at the time. I mean, I used to sit on the tube train when I was a kid in London. And there was a slogan. I think it was for um, Pittman shorthand or something. And so it had in a very few letters, it was like the precursor of Twitter. It had, get a good job with more pay and you're okay or something. So I just wrote that as a lyric in that song. So it, it was really pointing to the idea that if you increase your salary check or your pay packet, as most people, it was a brown paper envelope, you know, at the end of the week on Friday, you get, you get a brown paper envelope and it's got a few banknotes in it. And if you can make that number bigger, then everything will be okay. Well, of course, if you buy into that rationale, you immediately enslave yourself to whoever it is who's putting those few dollars or pounds or pfennigs or deutschmarks or shekels into that brown paper envelope. You become their slave. I don't know if that particular song was prophetic in any way. It's, it, I, my producer here, it speaks to him. What's your advice for folks here in the United States? Because, you know, you've got Donald Trump, who is obviously a figure of, I think, great evil. And you've got Hillary Clinton, who there is no candidate to the right of Hillary Clinton on the question of Israel. I mean, she, she even compared people who are for BDS to Pharaoh, which is an unbelievable slander. But so, so the, and Palestinians, we're, we're all Pharaoh. Uh, in other words, we have all the power and we're oppressing the oppressed right. Jewish slaves who live in this militarized state of Israel. Um, so the, the, the question I have for you is, given Hillary Clinton's politics, given Donald Trump's politics, what is your recommendation in terms of action of what you think folks should do here in the United States? Because voting on this question isn't going to cut it. It may well not, but it's had a huge impact. In one of the New York debates, I think I think it, it was, was Sanders. Yeah, yeah. That Sanders actually had the balls to get up on his hind legs, and even suggest that the Palestinian people should be treated with dignity. So went against the grain of everything that every politician has said in the United States, certainly since the Second World War and probably mm -hmm. before. It was a chink in the armor of Hasbro, and it was a small flicker of light in the darkness. And it was in huge contrast to Hillary Clinton's rebuttal of his remarks. I assume you've seen this move. You've seen it. Of course you have. So all that rockets raining down, Hamas terrorist organization 
trying to destroy Israel, you know, and so on and so forth. But exactly, she spouts the mantra word for word. She's absolutely word perfect, and she has been. Mm. And she entirely denies the real narrative. The real narrative is occupation. The land is occupied. The government of Israel has occupied the land in war. The war was in 1967. The war was not defensive. It was a unilateral attack upon the armed forces of Egypt and Syria and wherever. And it was a war to occupy the West Bank and Gaza and Sinai, as it turned out. So occupation is the issue. None of the rest of it is an issue. Mm. Um, none of it. And they, they'd been taught to say this stuff by, what's his name? Lutz. Yeah, Frank Lutz. Yeah, Frank Lutz, the guy who's, who's written their speeches for them and told them what they have to say and how they have to repeat it and whatever. And unfortunately, it's effective. Lutz wrote up his recommendations in a 2009 report called The Global Language Dictionary. If you want to understand how the propaganda works, especially in the US, you need to read the Lutz document. He's really clear that the occupation and especially the settlements are a problem. And he points to polls that show a large majority of Americans actually think that Israel should retreat to the 67 borders. In fact, he says, when you talk about land in terms of 67, you completely flip American sentiment against you. But, and this is his solution, if you bring up the danger of terrorism, you win back the support. The key, Lund says, is to claim that the fight is over ideology, not land, about terror, not territory. In fact, these three words, terror, not territory, summarize the basis of the propaganda campaign in the U.S. So you're, of course, part of this cultural boycott. Yeah. What are your thoughts about there being a sports boycott, about Israel being barred from international sporting competitions, much in the way South Africa was when it was under apartheid? I think if that could be engineered, it would be hugely useful and it would be a huge benefit to um, the Israeli people and to the Palestinians, clearly, because it would show solidarity with the Palestinian predicament. And their predicament is beyond awful. It's, but one cannot imagine what it must be like, never knowing when you're going to die at the hands of an occupying military. But... We know from the South African model that people care about sport. We all do. I mean, I do. I'm passionate about soccer particularly, and most of the world is, in the same way that the South Africans, before the end of apartheid in South Africa, were passionate, and still are, were passionately mm -hmm. devoted to rugby and cricket mainly. They were their big sports. And the fact that they were excluded from international competition was a huge wake-up call to them and affected, I think, the white minority in ways that no other form of boycott could have done. It's a wake-up call because they realized that the whole of the rest of the world, the whole of civil society, with the possible exception of Margaret Thatcher, were united in saying the policies of this regime are so anti-human and unjust and uh, against the principles of um, liberty and justice and equality and against all known international law 
but we need to make public our disapproval. And whatever way we can do it that is nonviolent is legitimate and should be used. So I, th I think a sports boycott would be a wonderful, wonderful help to countering the effects of the Hasbro so that it would push Hillary Clinton at least part of the way to facing the reality of the situation on the ground in the occupied territories rather than repeating the party line of the Hasbro that is handed to her by her political and economic master. And unfortunately, there is a connection between the amount of money that very rich people pour into the campaigns of, um, of political candidates. And the words that the come out of their that, mouths. And the words that come out <laughs> of their mouths, yeah, which is why Citizens United has to be repealed. And which is why Bernie Sanders is such an important addition to the... the finally, finalmente, we see somebody who is patently an honest man. Whether you agree with all his policies or not, this is an honest guy. And um, he's a minority of one at the moment, certainly in the presidential candidates. Yeah. Uh, maybe Kasich is, has got some honesty in him, but the rest of them, they're all entirely dishonest. But it is stunning to hear Hillary Clinton say both all of this money I've gotten from Wall Street has no effect on me and we need to overturn Citizens United. It's like, well, if it has no effect on politicians, right. why, why overturn it? Yeah. If it's just speech, why does it matter? Yeah, I know. You know, that's a tough one to have both ways. Yeah. I, a little birdie told me that growing up you were a big Arsenal fan. Is, is that still the case? Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm, this is one of the most disappointing seasons of my life that they they didn't they haven't fulfilled their, their promise of early season and gone on to challenge for the title. I hope Leicester win it, Leicester, which they will now. I used to go when I was a young man. I used to go and stand on the terrace at the clock end of the of Highbury Football Stadium when when they were still there. And, wow. And you know, and eat a bread roll and have a cup of bovril at halftime, and and I loved it. I absolutely adore. I used to go to every home game, and it was beautiful. And so, yeah, I still follow them. Should the Arsenal coach be kept? Oh, absolutely. I think he's a wonderful man. And um, frankly, at the end of the day, if they win the Premiership one of these seasons, or if they, or if they, or if they, I love the way that they play football. I love the wingers' uh, coaching methods. I love his style. I love his um, openness with the press when he does. Th he, this is a very elegant dude, and to toss him out and stick. You know, they're they're all on a kind of roundabout. They're all the same. It's all the same twenty managers that bosh around mm -hmm. Europe, and they get fired by somebody and taken out by somebody else. And yeah, you know, I have to say, you hear it in your voice, just as you said before. You haven't lost faith in humanity. You also. Sound like someone who hasn't lost faith in sports. No, I haven't. I mean, you know, sports, as we know, is it's ritualized warfare. But how much better is it than warfare, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, Great point. With, you know, the possible exception of, of professional um, caged martial arts and American football, nobody dies. <laughs> you know, they're certainly not playing soccer. You might get a broken leg, but that's about it. Wow. Yeah, and... You know, one village against the next. What's wrong with that? Village cricket on the village green. Great. Terrific. And the local community's attachment to their sporting heroes. 
clearly it can get subverted sometimes because very rich people own these clubs now and the franchises are worth a lot of money. So, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers can suddenly become the LA Dodgers. You know, they, they just will uproot a team and move it somewhere else. Oh, broke it, broke my father's heart. I'm a uh, Brooklyn Well, there boy. you go. It, it breaks people's hearts. It does because we do attach to our... Uh, to our local team in ways that I think are extremely healthy. And it's also universal, which is so interesting, which is why a sports boycott aimed at the Israeli-Palestinian issue could have so much power. Because you hear about a Palestinian soccer player being arrested or going on a hunger strike. There's an immediacy and a connection there that I think anybody can understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were those two Brazilian guys, Caetano and Gilberto, who, who, and they went and did a gig in Tel Aviv, and I wrote them a, a passionate letter asking them not to. They did, but one of them changed his mind. He went and looked at a settlement and at the Palestinian village next door, and he wrote a long article after he got back to Brazil saying, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have gone, I'll never go there again, I'll never play there again until the occupation ends, and blah, blah, blah. But part of the letter I sent them was... Um, story about these two 18-year-old kids who were aspiring international players walking home from training and they were shot by um, IDF soldiers uh, who shot at their feet and one of them shot seven times in his left foot and the other one was only shot once but it went right through his ankle and the doctors who treated them said these boys will be lucky if they ever walk again they'll certainly never kick a soccer ball again and you go, your heart breaks, and you go, how? And you think as well about the soldiers who did that. What were they thinking? What have they been taught? If we think that the American mind has been occupied, what about the Israeli mind and how it is occupied 24-7 from the moment they're born until the moment they're outside a soccer stadium shooting kids in the feet? It's beyond the worst horror that we can imagine. Mm. Roger Waters, again, thank you so much for for making the time. The film is called The Occupation of the American Mind, Israel's Public Relations War in the United States, available via streaming rental at www.occupationmovie.com. Dave, thank you for having me. If you're ever in D.C., we'll get a spot of tea. All right, man. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Cheers. Now for the part of the show I call Choice Words, where I read a column that I have written. This particular column I wrote for the Progressive Magazine. So I write this en route to Rio de Janeiro, site of the 2016 Summer Olympics. And I'm traveling to Brazil to examine the bumps in the road that always accompany those last 100 breakneck days before the summer games. No matter the host country, the standard modus operandi always includes debt, displacement, and the militarization in public space. Brazil, as I saw in the lead-up to another sporting mega-event, the 2014 World Cup, is no different. But the situation in Rio is unraveling more than in any Olympics in recent memory. 
A financial crisis is causing the economy to shrink by an estimated 4% in 2016. The Zika virus spread by mosquitoes is ravaging the country, festering fears that the 200,000 people who will visit Rio during the Olympics will become carriers when they return home. And roiling above it all is the nation's deepest political crisis in decades. Now, hosting the Olympics was supposed to be the crowning glory of the Workers' Party, which has ruled Brazil for the last 12 years. Instead, it may become the backdrop for the coronation of a new, far more right-wing government. The president, Dilma Rousseff, has been impeached by Brazil's lower house and could very well be removed from office by the time you're reading these words. Ironically, in a political system rife with corruption, Dilma might have the cleanest hands in the room. It's like in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Dilma is the one-eyed man because consider for a moment that of the 594 members of Brazil's Congress who come from a wide variety of political parties – More than half, almost two-thirds actually, are either facing charges or are under investigation. And no such allegations have been made against President Rousseff. In this stew of graft, she is being impeached simply because of how she chose to measure economic growth, how she chose to cook the books, not taking bribes, not trying to enrich herself like everybody else in Brazilian politics, but how she chose to measure growth. Now, Dilma, as she's popularly known, fudged the numbers the way it's always been done. And the difference, though, between her and her predecessors is that she faces a rabid right-wing media, an economic crisis, and dauntingly low approval ratings. There are now pitched battles in the streets as supporters of the Workers' Party see the goings-on as little more than a bloodless coup. Yet now there's this little thing called the Olympics, and that needs to be pulled off amidst all of this chaos and uncertainty. As Christopher Gaffney, who taught in Rio and has written extensively about the boondoggles created by the modern Olympics, said to me, quote, The wheels are coming off well before the Games, and International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach is going to be dragging his chariot through scorched earth, end quote. And that's why I'm traveling to Rio. We're less than 100 days until the Olympics, and the political and economic stability might make the people of Rio more willing to resist the big-budget infrastructure projects that go nowhere, the coming of the Brazilian army for security, and their very displacement. But there also may be a deflating pal of defeat amongst Rio's social movements. The Workers' Party had long since surrendered its grassroots support because of its endless deal-making with Brazil's oligarchy. But now that oligarchy has emerged, the wolf in the henhouse, to destroy the Workers' Party from the inside. Vice President Michel Temer, who is from a competing political party but brought in after the last elections as a demonstration of national unity, was found to be practicing his inaugural address as Dilma was still fighting off impeachment votes in the lower house. And by the way, Vice President Temer, who, like I said, is most likely about to come to power, in a poll taken in Brazil, only 2% of the country said they would vote for this guy. 2%. And he's going to be the president of one of the largest democracies on earth. Now, keep your friends close and your enemies closer might be a great line in a movie, but as a governing philosophy, it may have sealed Dilma's fate. Now the Rio Olympics will no longer be the workers' party's shining glory, but a scene that sanctifies a political coup. The athletes deserve better, and the people of Brazil definitely deserve better than to be props for this madness and for the usurping of democracy. (laughs) 
Se você pensa que a Copa é nossa A Copa não é nossa, não A Copa é das empreiteiras Não sobra nada pro povão And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. I mean, obviously, this is where my head is at, so this is who it's going to go to. The Just Stand Up Award is going to everybody in Brazil who is still fighting right now. The infrastructure projects are being built. Uh, people are resisting the spread of the Zika virus. Uh, people are resisting the 65,000 guns that are going to be pointed in the faces of Rio's communities, um, particularly the favela communities. There's a record number of police shootings this year in the lead up to the Olympics, a record number of kids who are being shot, and there are people still resisting all of this. And they deserve all of our credit, all of our support, and all of our solidarity. Amnesty International is down there on the case. Local social movements are on the case. Groups like Catalytic Communities are on the case. And I'm going down there to be on the case. So to all the listeners out there, wish me luck. And if you want to contact me while I'm gone, you can contact me over Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can email me at edgesports at slate.com. My producer's Dan Bloom. Please listen to last week's show where we talked to Michael Sam. It is beyond badass. And we are out of here. Peace. Pode me chamar de vândalo Disso até acho graça Só não quero que acabe Mobilização das massas 